Grab your Bibles, both of the James. We'll get to James in a, in a few minutes. Um, if you're visiting with us, and I always try to explain this if you're a visitor, um, a lot of times what we do as we look in the Word of God together as a church is we just take a book of the Bible and we start in the first verse and we just work our way all the way to the end of the book. And we kind of believe this around here. Um, God is creative enough. I don't really need to be more creative than His Word. But here's the deal. So you might visit one Sunday and go, hey, man, that church, it just talks about, I want them to talk about this topic or that topic. Well, we just talk about whatever topic comes up as we go through. And so um, we're going to look at what that what the topic is today. We'll get to the verses in a few minutes. But I want to give you a little intro first, and I think it, it's going to help explain um, what James is writing. And James, we're going to look at chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. So let me explain a little bit of something about me in case you don't know it, because um, it's going to help with this. So I've had a privilege in my life. And some people, the privilege that you would think in your life is that you have just been in one place, done one thing you love, and a lot, a lot of transition. Um, our lives are exactly the opposite of that. I believe it's, I feel it's a privilege in my life because I have done a ton of different things, um, occupationally and just, you know, things I've done, and lived in all different kinds of places. So I've got to experience different stuff. So I was raised, and we were both raised right here, I was raised in Cedarburg in a middle-class home, and uh, my dad's a construction worker, and Suzanne was raised in West Bend, and her dad is a tool-and-die guy. So her, she was raised a little higher level than us, really, um, economically. We were kind of middle-class or lower middle-class. She was kind of, kind of a little upper, nice house, and, and we had a small little thousand-square-foot house in Cedarburg, um, but, but kind of same. Middle class, Ozaki and West, Washington County people right here in the Midwest. Uh, but I'm not going to go into chronological order with this. Um, we've also lived in the UP, Upper Peninsula of Michigan. If you're new here, we call Upper Peninsula of Michigan the UP. And who lives in the UP? What are they called? Upers. Y-O-O-P-E-R-S. My boys are both Upers because they were both born in the UP. And um, so the Upers live in the UP, and we lived up there, and we were church planters right out of college. We went up there and started a church. Matter of fact, Chris is here, Chris Loopy, who was part of our church plant up there in Marquette, now lives in Cedarburg. And so we're Upers, and this is the truth, and she can tell you that this is the truth if you don't believe me. We had absolutely nothing. I mean, we were, we, were, we were poor. We did not have much money. The church, we started it from scratch. No outside income hardly to help us. And we started the church by faith, built it up. God built a great church, um, awesome place. And, uh, but during those years, Suzanne and I really had nothing. We were both committed to not working outside the church. We both were full-time, fully invested in the church. And so and we had two kids there. And so we had very little. But we saw God do amazing, incredible miracles in many regards, and in and, um, and provision was one of the ways we saw him provide for us. We were there for 10 years. We've also been missionaries in Cambodia, where we lived in Cambodia. To, we were asked to go there to teach church planting, and we were there. And when we lived in Cambodia, if you know anything about the world, Cambodia is one of the most devastated and poorest countries in the world. And, and when we lived there as missionaries, we lived quite well. Matter of fact, we lived economically the highest we had ever lived in our lives to that point. There was only certain housing we could live in, and the housing was rented for us before we got there. So we had a house that was bigger than any house we had ever lived in. The first new car we ever had was because we were missionaries, because 
there's no cars there, and we had to get a car, a speed the light car, and they had to buy us a car. We don't buy used cars. We had a, a new car, a Toyota pickup, brand new. Extended cab called a Hilux. It was, it was gorgeous. That now another missionary has. So we had a, we had a nice car. Um, we lived quite well. We had food. When the electricity was running, we had electric. A lot of times we didn't have electric, and the food we ate did get us sick a lot. I had No lie, I had dysentery for 15 straight months. Um, we were sick. My family was always going to, to Thailand to get medical treatment, mainly from eating bad food and drinking bad water. But that was, that was our life. So we lived in Cambodia, and um, when we lived there, we lived with a level of turmoil within our spirits because um, we had to determine, as we're living in this impoverished nation, how do we live amongst impoverished people, but we're Westerners coming in? We have resources. Our missions agency gets us a house. They give us a car. They pay our electric bill. We have food to eat. And there's people all around us who literally have nothing. They don't have a house. They don't have a car. They don't have enough food. Matter of fact, some of them are literally starving to death. Right? Everywhere you go, they're going. The word for rice in Khmer is nyum. Say nyum. Not numb, nyum, <laughs> nyum, and they go to see like this, nyum, 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 and that's saying rice, 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 and they're asking for rice. Every time you stop at an intersection, they're tapping on your windows, nyum, 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 and they're asking for rice because they're hungry. Little babies, dirty, hungry, starving. So we lived there, and we lived in this turmoil. How much should we have? How much should we give? How much like them should we live? What about our kids? How do we raise our kids in this environment? What should they have? Is it fair to them to buy them nice stuff if the kids around them don't have anything? And we lived in the turmoil of trying to figure that out. We've also lived in Louisiana and Missouri um, in the years that I went to college. Louisiana was dirt poor. Uh, Missouri was kind of Midwest. And But when we were in college, we made a commitment, and it was between me and God, and I really think God led me to do it, that I'd go through my entire college. I was a financial planner before I went to Bible college, and I made a deal with God. I said, I'll do this. I'll go to college. I'll work my butt off, because I've always been a hard worker, um, but I'll never borrow one penny. And I went to private colleges. I'll never borrow one penny. God, as long as you provide for me, I'll go to college, and um, but I'll never borrow a dime. So we went through four years of college, never borrowed a penny. But and worked really, really hard. Got married halfway through. Um, so my at the end of my sophomore year, going into my junior year, Suzanne and I got married. And but here's the deal: we we vowed to not borrow money, and as a result, God took care of us. But we had nothing. Literally, we had nothing. We lived on ten dollars a week for groceries, and that's not. We bought rice. We lived on rice, refried beans, and ground turkey. That's truth. We worked at a street mission because I always had a passion to work do street mission work. But one of the reasons we worked there is we got food. We ate the food from the street mission. We shopped at Goodwill. We never went out. I don't think we ate one meal out in the entire time that we were in college. We couldn't afford it. We could barely, we could, we'd pray every week to get money for gas just to drive. We had one car, an old beat up Nissan B210 or something like it was called, rusted out, but that thing never broke down. One time we had to drive. We didn't have enough money to drive. And we had to drive from one state to another because of some family issues. And we had enough money, we thought, to get gas. And when I figured out the mileage in the car, the car got over 50 miles to the gallon, which is impossible. The car got like 30. So God always provided for us in some way. Literally, I think God made our car run on, on little gas. God was always there for us. Um, so I've, we've, we've lived like that. And we chose, and we're glad that we lived like that. We lived with, so we've seen God provide for us. But a lot of times providing meant we didn't have a whole lot. Now... Um, I live in um, one of the wealthiest counties, or the wealthiest county in Wisconsin, Ozaki County, in one of the wealthiest counties in America, 
um, where I'm well paid as the pastor here. And understand this, all the time before that, I could have been well paid. I chose to do the kind of ministries that we did, knowing that they were very low paid. Um, where I'm well paid, Suzanne became a nurse since we've been here. So she's part-time nurse, part-time on staff here. And now we have more than we need. We never just say this, oh, we just have to just get by. We don't have to. Now, some of you in this room might be in a spot where you're saying, I'm just trying to just get by, but we're in a stage of life where we, that we're not, that we're beyond that. We actually have more than we need right now. And through all these experiences, and I could give you a dozen more of different situations, through all these experiences, we have always had an internal struggle. Always. It's been big in us, an internal struggle. With how much do we need, and how much should we keep, and how much should we give away, and should we save, what should we save, Um, And it's been really hard, especially when we rub shoulders with people who have less. Because here's what I learned, this is easy to say here, somebody else always has less. Always has less. And I think there should be a tension. There should be an internal struggle. Because if we're believers and we know anything about the Word of God, we've walked with Jesus at all, we know some things to be true. Say this, we know things. See, we know things to be true. We know... In here, maybe not in here, but we know this. If I was to ask you, you to answer this in a question, is this true or false? And I said this, really, it's all God's. True or false? You would, probably every one of you would say, true. There was a time in my life I would have checked false because I didn't understand that, but probably right now, most of you in here say everything that you have, everything in the world's God's, even everything with your name on it's God's, you'd say, true, it's all really God's. We know some things. I know it's really all God's. That all that I have is really just because of him. That I've had really no control over a lot of things in my life that determined what I have today. I had no control over where I was born. I had no control over the gift things I was naturally given. I have no control over the health that I was given. Those things are determined by God, not by me. So if I am born in America, for me, Ozaki County, and I have been given good health, and I have been given a relatively competent, sharp mind, and I use those things to accomplish a lot and to gain a lot, that's really a gift because it's all started with God. And I remember, and this happened a number of times, it happened to me very distinctly one time when I was a chaplain assistant in a juvenile prison in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, with violent offenders, violent youth offenders, were mainly from New Orleans. And I remember looking at a kid whose mom had been a prostitute and he had murdered the man who was trying to kill his mom and he went to jail as a violent offender for just taking care of his mom. His whole life was raised um, in hotel rooms as his mom was with different men every day, multiple times. And eventually he killed the man and he went to jail for that. And I remember looking at that thinking, I went in as the great white hope and thinking I had all the answers and I realized I was, if I was in his spot, I would have done the exact same thing. If I was raised like him, I'd be just like he was. I'd be sitting in that jail that day. And it really hit me when we lived in Cambodia because I didn't ask to be born in America and we met many wonderful Cambodians who were dirt poor. They had nothing. And I realized I could have been born, I didn't choose where I was born, I could have been born a poor rice farmer you know, in Battenbong, Cambodia and I could be the Best, best physical condition, the sharpest mind in the world, the hardest working person, and no matter what those things 
what, how hard I was, how smart I was, I would end up being a poor rice farmer because the system would not allow me to be anything else. That's what I would be. There's no opportunities. I couldn't go to school. There's no opportunities. There's, there's no advancement. I would do what has been done for there are over 3,000 years of recorded history in Cambodia. We think we're old. We're like 200 years old in America. 3,000 years of recorded history in Cambodia of rice farming. So we know some things. Uh, we know something else. That those things that have been given to us are given for a couple reasons. These things that we have. They're number one, given to bless us. And they are given to bless us. You are made to live in a garden in abundance. That's how mankind is. So God gives us things for our good and for our enjoyment. So they're given to bless us. But we also know something else. We also know those things that are given to us are given to us to bless others in Jesus' name. That's a resounding, uh, repeated uh, idea through Scripture. That what I have, I had to, I, it's given to me so I can give it away. So some of what's been entrusted to us we understand things, something we know is it's not for us. It's for us to expand the loving influence of God around the world that he loves and created. We know these things to be true. And we know some other things from the scripture. We know that there are some biblical guidelines pertaining to this. And we'll spend a lot of time on this, but there's some guidelines. Scripture says that the first 10% that we earn is to go to God. It's called the tithe. It goes to the support of the work of God in the local place. So in our context today, in the New Testament, it goes to the support of the local church. That's where scripture, I believe, says it's supposed to go. You can disagree, and that's fine. I don't think it's a salvation issue, but it's a wisdom issue. Um, if the local church doesn't function, any other parachurch organization, anything the church does goes away and eventually. So the local church is the most important thing God is doing on planet Earth right now. He's creating families transformed by God, and then he's creating the local church. And the local church from that other thing spring. So the tithe is to go to the support of the local church. God's plan to change the world is the local church, and God's plan for financing the local church is the tithes of his people. And I think that's a starting point for Christian generosity, is a tithe of his people going to the support of the local church. And I can tell you this, that no matter how much we've had or how little we've had, and we've had times we literally didn't say, think we had money to buy food for years, that was situations, we've always paid our tithe to the church first, and God has blessed us because of it. We are, Suzanne and I are ridiculously blessed people. Never believe, we say all the time, do you ever believe you'd be in a spot like this? We always say no, because we thought we'd just do street mission work our whole life and be impoverished. And we were willing to do that if God wanted us to do it. We know some other things. We know that scripture says that we um, give offerings also uh, in addition to our tithes. That we give to those things that expand the kingdom, that move it forward, that take it around the world and across the street. And around here we call that, we started calling it um, kingdom builders. That's what we refer to as missions. It's mission. It's moving things around the world. Those things, tithes and offerings, they are biblical guidelines. We see those, we see those in scripture. But there's something else we know and it's a little deeper, it's a little more underlying than just looking at this is, this is requirements. That all of this idea of what we have and what we do with what we have, there's a lot more to it than guidelines and minimum requirements. That it's really a matter of the heart. That it's really an issue of the heart. As followers of Jesus, the question we need to ask is, do our hearts beat with his? Do our hearts love what he loves and hurt for what he hurts for? You know, it's beyond rules and minimum requirements. Do our hearts compel us to use the resources we've been trust, entrusted with to accomplish what God is working to accomplish in the world? Or are, have our hearts, because of either being unaware 
or unconcerned, or our hearts are hard, or our hearts are cold, do our hearts, because of something, not anymore beat with how God's heart beats and don't break for the things that break God's heart? Because the things that break God's heart, according to Scripture, are, are hurting people and helpless people and victimized people many of whom are in the terrible situations that they're in simply because the situations they were born into. Simply because they were born a rice farmer in Cambodia instead of a middle-class son of an electrician in Cedarburg. Simply the only difference is of where they were born. You see, I can't imagine, and I'm not trying to start some political thing here and, uh, and... so don't allow your brains to go there. But just for one second, try to let's empathize. I can't imagine what it's like to be if, if my sons were born, instead of to us in the UP, were born to a 14-year-old single mom in the central city of Milwaukee with no dad around and no grandparents around living on welfare, I can't imagine what their lives would be like. I can't imagine what my life would be like if I was raised in that situation. This is the turmoil. This is the tension that, I've always, that we've always had to live with. And this is the issue that James is dealing with in the verses that we're going to look at today. And I had to set it up this way because James is going to do what he does. He comes out swinging. And I had to set it up this way to understand what the intent of what he's doing that he's dealing with this idea of what do those with abundance, which is me and many of you, what do people with abundance do with their abundance? So now let's look at James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Now James starts this one off the same way he started off the verses we looked at last week, where he comes up, come now. You know, can you imagine him saying that? Come now, Mark. Pay attention to what I have to say. Come now, you rich. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. He said something bad's coming your way. Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which have been withheld by you cries out against you, and the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of the Sabbath. You have lived luxuriously on earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fatted your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man he does not resist you. Now, in typical James style, and if you're visiting with us, we've tried to reveal this, that, that the Apostle James, he's, he's just kind of this ready, fire, aim guy. Not ready, aim, fire. He just, boom, comes out and says it. You know, and he's like in people's face. And so in typical James style, James come out, he comes out swinging here. And he's swinging at people who have abundance. In particular, let's put it in context, in particular, he's dealing with a situation in his day where the rich land-owning farmers 
were exploiting the poor people who worked for them. They were cheating them out of their pay. And he says here, uh, as a result, that they have, he has, they have condemned them by not paying them and have killed the innocent people. Now, what's he saying there? I don't believe he's saying they took knives and, and stabbed them and killed them. They didn't put a gun to their head. But by cheating them out of their meager wages, it says they've worked for you, but you're not paying them. They robbed those poor people of their very lives and maybe even caused their deaths through maybe something as, as tragic as starvation, not having enough. We saw that in Cambodia. Or the issues of poverty that can so negatively affect people, um, sickness and disease. James comes out swinging. He says, listen, the cries of these people have reached the ears of God, which is a reference to when the people of Israel cried out to God from Egyptian slavery. Remember what happened then? Says to Moses, I've heard the cries of my people. For 400 years they cried out, and God says, I've heard their cries. And what happens when God hears the cries of the oppressed? He intervened, and God destroyed the armies of Egypt, who were the oppressors, in order to set his people free. So he uses that same imagery here, saying God's, God's hearing the cries of the oppressed who are calling out. James is saying, listen, God hears the cries of the needy and he takes action against the oppressors. Now that's, that's pretty strong. He takes action against the oppressors. Now I don't think any of us in this room probably fall into the category of some oppressive business owner who utilizes slave labor in order to get rich. Now that is going on all around the world. It's going on in Cambodia. But I don't think any of us are, you know, own sweatshops or we're starving people to death who work in our fields. But I do think there's a very real warning, some very real warnings in this verse, in these verses that do apply to most all of us simply because of where we live and the access to what we have. And it's this. There is a burden that comes with abundance. There is a burden that comes with abundance. Scripture says something very clearly. It says, to whom much is given, much is required. And many of us have been given much. And here's how I can say, if you say you don't have much or we don't have much, I want you to do an experiment today. And some of you don't do this, so somebody you know does have this. So I want you to go on Facebook or some similar social media today if you don't believe what I'm saying. And I want you to look at what just our church family is posting about. Church family and your friends and relatives. What are they posting about? Look at these things. Because we only go on Facebook or social media generally when we buy something, go somewhere, do something. That's pretty much what we do. Or eat something. Even that, imagine that. Imagine 50% of the posts on Facebook, they say, are about food. Um, Imagine that one-third of the world right now, one-third is starving to death. One-third is starving to death, one-third is just enough, and one-third is more than it needs. That's pretty much the the breakdown of about approximately 8 billion people on our planet. So I want you to go on Facebook or something, on, on social media, and I want you to look at what things we buy Somebody's going, hey, I just bought a new... And you know what? I've got stuff. I'm not saying you shouldn't have stuff. What things we buy? The places that we go. Look at how many people... Because so look at... So a good 40% of our church probably is off somewhere else today. Look at where they are. They're posting. In their motorhomes, or at their cabins, or at the resorts. 
And I'm not saying you shouldn't do those things, but I'm saying look at it. Let's see the truth instead of putting our heads in the sand and look at what we have. Look at where they go, how they get there, the places we go, the activities we do, the things we enjoy, the indulgences that we do, all things that only result from one thing, abundance. They, about, they result from abundance. So seriously, look at your friends and yourself and your family on social media and look at what we do, where we go, what we have, what we purchase, what we show off. Just look at that once and ask yourself, now here's the deal. Is abundance bad? No, I've said it like five times already. Abundance is good. We were created to live in a garden in abundance. But there is a burden that comes with abundance. What should I enjoy? What should I give? What should I keep? What should I buy? What should I give away? There should be a tension in us if we're followers of God because we know things. Those things we talked about earlier. We know things that should shape how we use the abundance we've been given. And in this section of Scripture, I see three things that James warns against. Things that he says are signs that we are probably using what God has given us improperly. And so I want us to look at those three things today. So, the burden of people living in abundance. What are the three things he warns against? Number one, James warns against hoarding. That's what he's talking about in the first few verses that we read. James describes people who amass wealth and stuff. And look what he talks about. He basically talks about gold, silver, and clothes. He says, you have stashes of gold and silver. And this is what he says about them. He says, They're, they've rusted or they've tarnished. Now, can gold and silver rust? They can't. Precious metal. So what's he talking about? He's talking about them tarnishing. If most commentators believe, he's talking about the fact that they're, that they're tarnished. Silver, if anybody has silver, you've got to polish silver, right? Because silver tarnishes. And the point he's making about the, that they're rusting or they're tarnishing is this, that they're not in use. That if I have, if I have a pile of gold or silver not in use, um, there's evidence that it's not in use. It becomes dirty and dusty and tarnished because it's stored away, it's stashed away, it's stockpiled. That it's not being used. You have it, but it's just a big stockpile and you're not using it. It's not, being, it's not doing any good. It's not helping anybody. It's not helping you even. It's just a great big stockpile that's being tarnished. He says, look, it, it, I can tell you're not using it. It's just, it's just a big stockpile that's being tarnished. And he says that tarnish will speak against you at judgment. And then he says, you have basically saying this, you have piles of clothing. Um, he says, it's, it's moth in He's basically saying you've got so much clothes that before you can even wear it, the moths get to it and eat holes in it. You buy it, you hoard it, you hold it, but it actually goes bad. Maybe in our world it goes out of style. Or you grow out of it. Anybody got any of that? Suzanne did something to me last week that was pretty mean. It's loving. She bought me two really nice looking t-shirts. What's the name of a brand name? It's because you like that brand name, whatever it is. Mike, Michael, Mark Anthony. They're Mark Anthony slim cut. I said, when in your mind have I been a slim cut person? The last time I was slim cut. And so they're really nice looking. I wore one the other day, and I sucked my gut in the whole time I wore it. <laughs> Reminded me that I live in abundance. And so here's the deal. I kept the shirts. 
saying, I'm going to wear them because I'm going to lose this belly. Now, here's the deal. I'll tell you in a year if I ever wore the shirts again. Um, that's kind of what he's talking about. you got so much that before you can even wear it, the moths eat it or you outgrow it or it goes out of style. James says the treasures that you have hoarded will testify against you on the day of judgment. He's saying, listen, this is, hoarding's not where it's at. And here's one of the great tension points that we all need to wrestle with. How much is enough? How big should our stockpiles be? How big should, how much should we keep? How much should our savings be? How much should we amass for retirement? Are we going beyond sensible savings to hoarding? Is the question we need to ask. Now here's the deal. I can't give you any specific guidelines. I can just help you seek God about it. Because here's what I know to be true. First of all, savings is good. Savings is good. It helps you weather the lean times. Who knows that economies go up and they go down, right? Some of you business owners in particular, remember a few years back, Jeff, when, you're, when, the, when the economy was going bad and God gave you an idea how to make a bracket and you made that bracket, you manufactured it because the engineering comp world was dying because nobody was building. Times were lean. And all of you have experienced that. 2008, 2009, 2010, even in Ozaki County, times were lean. People lost their jobs. People were downsized. Savings helps you in that. You should have some ability to weather a storm. So savings is good for that. It's also good because it's responsible preparation for tomorrow. In that same vein, we don't know what tomorrow is and we don't know what next year is. So having some ability to prepare for tomorrow, even though we don't know what it is, is a good thing. So I'm not dependent on other people. I always want to be dependent on God, but I want to be a burden on other people. If I don't have to, if I can save properly. Savings is also good because it makes a person able to respond to the needs of others. So when I say things like, you know what, we're going we're gonna to help moms save their babies. You know why we can fill these bottles up? Because we, because we save, because we have, a, we have, if I say, right on it, if I said today, listen, we need to raise $4,000, God wants us to do it, and I said to fill this big bottle up with $4,000, you people would do it because you proved it. You would write checks out. You know how you can write checks out? You can only write a check out because you've got money in there to cover it. Otherwise, don't do it because you'll end up going to jail, writing checks that you can't cover. Johnny Cash has a song that sings about that. Don't, she's saying, don't sing it. There ain't no good in that evil-hearted woman and don't write bad checks in Mississippi or something like that. So you guys know that song, some of you who, who like old music. And so here's the deal. It makes a person able to respond to the needs of others. If we did not save, we could not give. So I'm not saying savings is bad, but here's the deal. Paul says hoarding is bad. Hoarding is more of a mindset, a heart set. It fosters a sense of earthly security and independence from God. The best biblical example from, of hoarding is, this, is the story Jesus tells of the rich farmer who had a ton, and he said, I want to I get more. So he destroyed his barns, built new barns, and filled them up and said, Be at ease, my soul. You have enough for as long as you want. And God says, The problem with you is you've not been rich towards God, and this very night your soul will be required of you. He was a hoarder. He, was, he had a security in earthly things. He said, if my stockpile can be big enough, I can weather anything. Here's the deal. Your stockpile can't be big enough to weather anything. If you lived in 1929, uh, you'd find out no matter how big your stockpile was, you probably lost it all. Most people did. The bigger the stockpile, the bigger you, more you lost. And so hoarding is a, is a heart problem that says, I don't, need, I don't want to or need to depend on God. And so I'm going to amass as much as I possibly can. 
So I'm only dependent on me. Hoarding is also bad because it promotes a sense of superiority over others. My pile is bigger than your pile. I'm better than you because I got more. And our society is filled with that. I'm a, we have, I'm a upper class. Do we say upper class based on it? You're upper class because of your looks? You're upper class because of your education? No, you're upper class about how big your stockpile is. That's what we really use. How much money do you have? How much have you hoarded? We classify people based on what they've hoarded. And another reason hoarding is bad is it assumes, this is an assumption that's wrong, that we said in the beginning, we know some things, and this is the counterpoint to it. We assume that what one gets is always for their own personal benefit. That everything I get is mine and is for my personal benefit. So if I can't use it because I don't need it, I just hoard it. I don't get it to give it away. I get it to hoard it because if it's got my name on it, it's mine, and therefore I have reason. I have, it's always mine, only for me, and therefore if I get it, means I shouldn't, um, I don't need to think about where it could do, what good I could do with it. It's just that's mine, so it's for me, so I don't need it, I just stockpile it. That's hoarding. So one of the burdens of abundance is to decide how much is enough and to know, according to James, we'll be responsible to answer for our actions, he says, at judgment. Because the treasures you have hoarded will testify against you on the day of judgment. So one of the burdens of abundance, and here's the thing, it's, it's, a heavy, it's a heavy weight to carry. A burden of abundance to say, listen, what am I going to do with what's been entrusted to me? It's a burden to say, I have a responsibility. What am I going to do with what's been entrusted to me? That's the first burden is not be a hoarder. The second one is this, and this one will take a lot less time to talk about. It's just because this one could be a whole sermon in itself, and I just want to hit on it because, man, it's a complicated one, is taking advantage of the poor. Because I said this, I don't believe any of you are running a sweatshop or any of us here are rich landowners who, are, who have impoverished slaves working for us that we treat badly and don't pay them anything. You know, so it's, it, it's not an exact, um, you know, connection, exact illustration we can use, but, but this is not taking advantage of the poor. This is a complex one. Because we could go down this path, and I think it's the right path to think about. I can't say I have the answers to, but I want to stir your heart up to think about this at least. Things like, should we buy cheap products that are produced by taking advantage of poor workers in other countries? You know, the big boom in the last number of years, because we, because we are selfish, and so we say we feel good, so we buy really good coffee that's free trade coffee. Well, we feel good about it. We're just buying really nice coffee because we like it. But we feel good because it's free trade coffee, which means the people are not taken advantage of who are, who are producing it. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. Having a social conscience that says, am I taking advantage, are people being taken advantage of in order for me to get something cheaper? And am I going to participate in that, in that? Is there a way I don't have to participate in that? Can I make different choices? Or how about this? You know, you're going to get engaged or you're going to buy an anniversary ring for that special someone or an engagement ring. Are we responsible to say, is that a blood diamond? You know, that's been made popular the last number of years where, where the diamonds are mined. They call them blood diamonds because they're mined at the expense of the blood of other people. They're mined in horrible conditions that exploit the needy so that we can get a nice diamond on our, on our finger and give it to our wife or a girlfriend or a husband or whatever. And so do we have a responsibility? I think we have some responsibility to think about those things in our purchases. Or maybe this one. Maybe this is the one that, that can maybe hit at the heart of it. Would you hire an undocumented alien to do your yard work or your housework because they'll do it for less? That's a big issue in America today. Millions of undocumented aliens living and working here. And 
would we take advantage of them, hire them for less, simply because they're undocumented and you know they'll do it for less? I think those are the kind of issues that tie into this situation here. One of the burdens of abundance is to wrestle with this issue. And I would say that maybe we, maybe we can't solve it for the world, but we can try to think about it for our own lives and at least say, let's not try to more contribute to the problem, so think about them and try to do your best to help the needy that you see in ways that are appropriate and helpful. So he says, don't hoard. Number two, don't take advantage of the poor. And the third thing that James warns against is living in luxury when others are in poverty. Look at verse 5. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fatted your hearts in a day of slaughter. He's saying the slaughter is coming. You've got fat. Basically, you're just preparing yourself for slaughter. Reminds me of the parable Jesus told about the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man lived in luxury while Lazarus laid hungry in the street near his house. Both died and Lazarus went to heaven. It says Abraham's bosom and and the rich man went to hell or was in the flames. And in the story, what I really think the heart of the story is, is Jesus condemns the person of abundance for this, for never taking notice of the needs of Lazarus and never doing anything to help the person in need. See, I think that's the real gist of it, never taking notice of it. Do you know what strikes me as I think about this parable the most? What strikes me is what we would normally use as our excuse for not helping. And it's this. Lazarus was in no way connected to the rich man. Lazarus was not related to the rich man. Lazarus was not in the sphere of influence or the circle of friends of the rich man. The rich man, of all appearances, the rich man did not know Lazarus. Matter of fact, of all appearances, the rich man didn't even notice Lazarus. Yet Jesus doesn't use that as an excuse for him being uninvolved with the plight of Lazarus. Jesus seems here to be implying that there is a burden upon those who have abundance to take notice of the needs of the poor. That seems to be the heart of what Jesus is saying here. That that those who have, have been given that by God. And by being given that by God, they are to be God's resource into the world. The way God's saying, I want to help the needy, is I've given it to, to, to the people of abundance so that you can notice the people who are in a difficult situation and help them in their plight. That God doesn't excuse Lazarus and go, or the rich man and go, well, you never even noticed Lazarus. It seems to be implying, no, the problem is you should have noticed, but you're too busy in your abundance. Abundance can breed um, um, isolation. When you have so much that you don't have to interact with people other than just people just like you, you don't notice how bad it is around you. Lazarus is hung with his boys who had as much as him. He never saw a rich man, rather, did that. Lazarus never saw. Rich man never saw Lazarus there because he just never interacted with them. There's, an, there's a burden that comes with abundance. Maybe the biggest burden of abundance is to wrestle with how much should I have, how well should I live, and what should I give. It's a big burden. And this is why it's a big burden. Because I know you, and I know me. 
And for the most part, this is what I know about you if you've been, if you live in this area. You're a Midwesterner. You're probably, most of us, how many of you have some German roots? Say about 60% of us around here are, are, are predominantly German. But we're probably Northern European descent. We tend to be hardworking. We tend to work, um, be, have a good work ethic. We tend to, to be determined. We tend to put effort into things. And when we do that, guess what we get? We get rewarded. We get a paycheck. And guess whose name is on my... Pastor Mitch writes out my paycheck every two weeks. I've never seen one, by the way. Do I actually get a paycheck or does it go in the bank? I don't even know. She would know. <laughs> if I ever signed a check, the bank would arrest me for forgery. Because I don't... Because <laughs> I don't... I've never seen my uh, 30 years of marriage. I don't think I've ever seen our, our money. Um, I do spend it. <laughs> I do spend it, but she takes care of the bill, takes care of the stuff. So I work hard, and I've worked hard. I got an education. I'm working on my master's again, you know, extend my education. Still, I've been in school forever to try to do a better job of this job. You work hard, you get a paycheck and it has your name on it. It says Mark Larson. Suzanne works in Aurora. It says Suzanne Larson across it. So the, name, the check has my name on it, and I work hard, and guess what? I like nice stuff. I like going to nice places. I like eating good food. Friday night, we ate at Texas Roadhouse. It was good. I like nice food. And it's very hard to deny myself something that I believe is mine in order to give it to someone else who I don't even probably know. And I may even conclude, because I've never walked a mile in their shoes, they don't deserve it. They haven't earned it. Maybe I think they're lazy. Maybe they are lazy. I don't know. But it's hard to give um, what's mine to someone else and to sacrifice my own desires for them. But friends, isn't that exactly what Jesus did? Think of Paul what he wrote in Philippians chapter 2 about Jesus. Philippians chapter 2, one of the greatest sections of all the Bible, I think, says this. Speaking of Jesus, though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humblest position of a slave and was born as a human being. Jesus, who is our Lord, Jesus, who is our example, gives us the ultimate example of what we're talking about here in James. He gave up what was rightfully his, the divine existence in heaven, part of the Godhead. He emptied himself of some of that, of most of that, and experienced the, 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 the pain of dying and living, living and dying on this, in this world as a person in order to bless those who are impoverished which is every one of us, spiritually impoverished, without Jesus, without hope, destined for destruction. And the one who owned everything and is everything, emptied himself, gave it all away to help impoverished people that many of them actually rejected him. And Jesus invites us to imitate him. That's what Christianity is. It's walking with Jesus and imitating him. Remember, friends, this topic that James is dealing with here goes beyond rules 
it goes beyond minimum expectations. It's about our hearts. Do I have a heart that beats like Jesus' heart beats? My contention is that if these things do bother you, like they've bothered us for 30 years now, that they do cause you internal turmoil, that when you're going to purchase, say, but should I? Is that too much? What about my kids? It's because of the heart of Jesus within you. We should wrestle with these things and we should, it should cause us to make hard choices and oftentimes sacrificial choices because we're following the example of Jesus. So James here, as we wrap up, gives us these warnings to the people of abundance. He says, listen, there's a burden in abundance. So check yourself. Are you hoarding? Are you taking advantage of the poor? Are you living in luxury when others are living in poverty? Are you noticing that and trying to do something about it? I think we need to wrestle with these things. We need to ask these questions before we buy more, buy bigger, get, get, you know, get better. We need to ask those questions. There's a burden that comes with abundance and we need to own it. But let me wrap up with this. There's also an incredible opportunity that comes with abundance. Imagine what God can do through us. This group right here. He can take 12 guys and change the world. What can he do with Portview Church? Imagine what God can do with us with surrendered-hearted people. Imagine the lives that can be changed as we invest into others. Imagine the souls that can be saved as we invest into eternal ministry instead of just temporary stuff that will rot and get old and break down and we've got to spend our life fixing. Imagine what eternal ministries could be done if we chose to deny ourselves at times those big things or those special things or that event that we just think we have to do and instead said, I want to use the resources for that thing I was going to buy, place I was going to go, thing I was going to do, and I want to use that to help somebody who has less. God has entrusted us with a lot, friends, because he wants to do a lot through us. That's why he's entrusted us a lot. What an opportunity we have for good. Church, I don't have rules for what is enough. But I know we should start with the biblical starting points. But I believe we live the best lives, the most enjoyable lives, the most world-changing lives when we are abundantly generous like Jesus has been abundantly generous towards us. Amen? Let's stand together. Lord Jesus, we want to wrap this time up by just telling you Lord, I've been, I've been doing the talking here. And hopefully you've been speaking through your word, but I just ask you, Lord, to speak to our hearts in a very real way today. That, Lord, this, that we want to yield to you. Lord, some of us have had the, the opportunity, like the Apostle Paul talks about in Philippians, that he's lived with great abundance and he's great, lived with an empty stomach. And he said he learned he can do all things through Christ who strengthens him. He can, he can excel in you. And so, Father, that we could be like that. That we could be a people so yielded to you 
that we understand that the, the abundance that you've given us is really, you've just entrusted with us um, your gifts so that we could then, Lord, be the avenue that you use in this world to touch people who have less. And Lord, we see through scripture that your, your constant attention is given to the abused and the misused, the impoverished and the exploited. And Lord, we're in a spot where that doesn't describe most of us. And so, Lord, I want to thank you for that because it's no fun to be abused and it's no fun to be misused and it's no fun to be exploited and you don't want that for anybody on this planet. You're not calling us to go to to live in poverty and to, to be exploited and to be abused. That's not at all what you're calling us to. But God, what I pray what you would do is help us to see not through eyes that the world has taught us to look through, but to see through the eyes of, of your spirit informed by your word that says, look at you in abundance. What an opportunity that we have to be used by God. So God, in our lives, in all we're in all different spots, in our lives, comparatively, there are Lazaruses in all of our lives. People who have less that we probably walk by all the time and we don't even notice. And Lord, this is my prayer for Portview Church today. Open up our eyes. And God, guard our hearts because when you open up our eyes and we start to see the way you do, our hearts are going to be shocked by what's around us. And God, forgive us for being isolative, thinking we can hide from the world. We can use our abundance just to hide and just cloister ourselves off and, and hide and not ever interact with the, with the world around us that is like Lazarus, spiritually and financially. And so, Lord, open up our eyes to see the Lazaruses around us. And Lord, we release now the generosity you've given to us, the abundance. And say, God, lead our our hearts. Show us how you want us to use what you have blessed us with. Thank you that we can enjoy it, but show us how it can be used for a greater good to help people come to know you and for us to grow in Christ-likeness. So, Father, I pray for your church. Dangerous prayer, God. Open up our eyes. Open up our eyes to the world around us. Help us to have some turmoil in our spirits because of the real plight of the world that we live in. And then, God, would would you speak to us? Help us to be excited. And say, God told me this is what I'm supposed to do. God showed me this is a need I can meet. God said to me, get involved in this to help those with less. So God, that's the people we want to be. Do your work in our hearts, we pray. As we're in a moment of prayer today, maybe you're here and you know this our heads are bowed our eyes are closed you know this as we close talking about this Lord who's given himself for us Jesus who left heaven he gave up his rights and he came to earth as a person and he came for the reason 
to give his life in place of yours. That every one of us is guilty and sinful. And we couldn't do anything to fix ourselves. And we're, we're destined for damnation. But Jesus said, I want to rescue you. And he came in our place and he, he, he paid the, the price for the sins we committed. But beyond that, he broke the curse of death and hell. He broke the curse of sin. And he said, if you walk in me now, you don't have to live that life anymore. Because of the spirit of God within us. Or maybe you're here today and you know you're enchained. You know you don't know Jesus. But something's going on inside of you that's saying, I need Jesus. I need to be saved from my life. I need a brand new life. And if that's you today, as we're, as we're closing in prayer, and our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, I want you to do something between you and me and God and no one else because no one else is looking around and I will not call you or embarrass you. But I want to give you a chance just to respond and say, yes, I need you, Jesus. If you say, I need to ask Christ into my life today. Give my life to Jesus. I need him to forgive me. I want you to do something. I want you to raise up your hand. I'm not going to call you or embarrass you. I just want to see you because I'm going to pray with you. Just say yes to Jesus. I want you to do an action. Slip up your hand, okay? You can put your hand down. Anybody else? I want us to pray together. All these, you can put your hands down. Those who have raised them, we're going to pray. I'm going to invite our whole church family to do this. The whole church family that many of you have many of you have prayed to ask Jesus in your life. I want you today to do this. We're going to pray a prayer together out loud, and I invite you just to join in this prayer this morning. There's nothing magical about the words. It's not the intent. It's not the words. It's you talking to God. You're just inviting Christ into your life. So I'm going to invite the whole church. If you raise your hands, pray along this prayer this morning. Dear Jesus, I need you. So I ask you, come into my life. Heal me of my hurts. Forgive me of my sin. And make me brand new. On this day, Lord, I recognize that I need you. So I welcome you into my life. I ask you to be the Lord the leader of my life. And from this day, for as many days as I have, I want to walk with you. So Lord, receive me today. Make me brand new. Take away the garbage and help me as I live a brand new life. Starting today, because of you. Thank you.